Welcome to Just Push Play. We talk to musicians, authors, and music industry professionals discussing everything that rocks. Here's your host, Sherry. Welcome to Just Push Play, and my guest for this episode is Anna Marie O'Brien, author of Adventures of a Metalhead Librarian. Also with Anna Marie is someone that you may have heard of, a magazine and music veteran, Lon Friend. Thank you both for joining me today. Both happy to be here. Happy to be here. So, Anna Marie, I searched the Internet for uh, books regarding music a lot of the time. I'm a voracious reader, but I, I always look for books that are related to music, and I found yours, and I had to read it. So I jumped in and bought it, and, man, let me tell you, <laughs> talk about a coming-of-age <laughs> memoir. <laughs> yeah, pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> And I had a lot of parallels with you um, growing up. Uh, we were probably born around the, the same year. I'm not going to add us just yet. but um, Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I came from a broken family. I had a complicated relationship with my dad. Um, but also was a voracious reader and lover of heavy metal and, and hard rock and I admired Pamela DeBar from afar. So yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. I actually just reached out to her yesterday, and uh, I would love to, you know, get in contact with her and get her a copy of the book mm-hmm. because she was kind of like the godmother of this uh, in many ways. Uh, I didn't ever consider myself a groupie and such, but I was always a lover of the music, and of course, I loved the men who made the music, and um, it was a very, very male-dominated. Um, you know, it still is, but back then it was a very male dominated thing. And, but I think there's a lot of women our age who can relate to the story in some way. Um, you know, we're Gen Xers. We came up a little different. We're the last of the analog childhoods that we, you know, didn't have documented with photos like we do now. And, uh, so going back to that time and kind of, um, dredging up some of that was, um, it was definitely a labor of love. Yeah, I mean, um, it took you a few years to write the book. I mean, just because simply um, put you, you know, work and family and also a a diagnosis that, that, you know, gave you quite a bit of a a scare there. And so, you know, life happens. So sometimes you have to put things like you want to do, like a book, writing a book on the back burner for a while. But, um, you know, it out came a, a great, uh, I guess, journal of, of your life and uh, the experiences that you had at a young age. You know, when I was your age, I was, like, just entering college and trying to figure out who I was. Uh, you know, you knew what you wanted to do, um, you know, early on, and you you did it. You just took a leap of faith and and drove your your car out there and <laughs> out to California and started a a world a whirlwind basically of <laughs> of just like experiences yeah, it that was, yeah it was a crazy amount of synchronicity and good luck um, but it was also 
um, you know, kind of leaping forward to meet the future that I had envisioned for myself. And um, so, yeah, the book took me like five full years to write it. And I only got the inspiration to do it after I read, um, well, I've been wanting to write about it for years, but I never knew how to frame it um, until I read Cheryl Strayed's Wild. Um, that book came out in 2012, and I kept denying it until about 2014 when I read it. And I read it on a vacation at a beautiful lake house with my family, and it, that book cracked me open in so many ways. So out came this story, and um, I worked with a, um, a person who um, – I can't go to writing groups or anything like that, but I worked with a writing coach who kind of just was this one person I could talk to about the writing and about dredging up some of those memories and, um, and putting into a, a context of, of, of what it was that happened to me and what I went through. But um, yeah, so the diagnosis happened. Um, I was halfway through writing the book and after getting through the shock of getting a breast cancer diagnosis at the age of 44, Literally sitting in the doctor's office, I looked at my husband and said, I'm going to get to write my book. As awful as this thing is, I'm going to get the time I need. Even though I went through chemotherapy and, you know, radiation and all the crap, um, it gave me the time away from work to actually write the book. So in many ways, it was a blessing. Um, and I came out of it with this, you know, with a book. I mean, it's, you know, no other way to describe it. Five years of, of working on it. And, uh, hey, Sherry. Yes. If you're a writer, you often need trauma <laughs> to ignite your muse. Oh, trust I wrote, me. I know trauma. <laughs> and you I, do I too, Lon. So, I, I, trust I, I, me, I know. Yes, as far as the long form journey, which I took in 2000. And four and five, putting my first memoir together, Life Off Planet Rock, that was a direct reaction to my divorce and leaving Los Angeles for the first time. Mm-hmm. Now, when Anna Marie yeah, came I mean, to L.A., when, and Anna Marie made her, her, her busted-up car <laughs> exile the Midwest Cornhusker Buckeye land for glimmering <laughs> sunset. I was already there for years yeah. hobnobbing with those people that she idolized. She she did it's such a sojourn of courage to take this trip because you just think it's Disneyland when you get there. No, it's not Disneyland. No. No, the mad matter <laughs> is everywhere. The cups are broken and that's what I love so much about her memoir. We it was serendipity that we that she was in the same room as one of my parties in 1991, but yeah. the 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 full circle of meeting her and then uh, having this shared experience from where she was as the fan and me as the insider, <clears throat> that is that's what makes the really the essence of this her story so significant. Yeah, very much. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I. Myself, personally, I was literally born on Sunset Strip. And then I was ripped away from California by my mother and father at (laughs) 10 days old and wound up in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, and then moved to the Poconos of Pennsylvania. So, um, (laughs) you know, going back there the first time for me was like, oh, I'm going back to my birthplace, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was all about the rainbow and, and everything for me, too. So so I get it. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, yeah. It was, uh, yeah. So 
Juan was in my, I have, uh, I have a box full of memories and, it, you know, I kind of minded as I was writing and um, I went back through some of my old phone books at, from my days at Metal Blade Records and working for um, Megadeth's financial planner guy. Uh, and I had Lon in my phone book, but and he was somebody that would call in to speak with my boss or other people, but I never met him back then. But I had his name and his phone number, you know, in my book. So he reached out to me a couple of years ago on Instagram and, uh, you know, here we are today, but um, it really is a full circle moment for me to, uh, to know who he is and to, you know, I've grown up reading his stuff and enjoying Rip Magazine Um you know, and you, and you obviously you read about all that in the book and how it's all tied in, but um, yeah, so it's been a great, it's been a great ride, I tell you that. <laughs> yeah, and having the posters in his magazine on your wall and and stuff like, you know, the stuff on, in Rip Magazine is like forever, uh, you know, in in scrapbooks and and things of that nature right. of of my history too. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sure. But yeah, the full circle moment is 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 always great. I I love those stories. Um, so, yeah. uh, who is Marion? <laughs> oh, Marion. He so he long calls me Marion because I am a librarian, and um, Marion the librarian was a character in a movie called The Music Man. Yeah, starring Shirley, starring Robert Preston and Shirley Jones. It was released the year I was born in 1956. I think I watched it with my father the first time when I was really little. But I love the movie, and the the key figure of the film, the love interest, is Marion the librarian. She's the cold, gorgeous chick who keeps her hair buttoned up. That that Robert Preston is trying to woo with his fancy dancing and fast talking. And I never really knew any librarians, and I've been around, and I really haven't known any. She's a librarian, so I I put something cinematic to anything if, if possible. I was I was born in Hollywood, yeah. So <laughs> uh-huh. that that's that's why I called her. That was my nickname for, her, and nobody calls her that but me. So no. it's sort of a personal thing. And you know, my mom's okay. real name. My mom's real name is Mary Ann, and she when I was born twisted her name to make it Anna Marie. So him calling me Marion is is kind of a a very appropriate moniker term of endearment. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. So so speaking of loved ones, um, did they get the chance? I mean, I'm sure your mom has and and your husband. Um, what were their reactions like to to reading your book? Was it uh, uh, sentimental or was it? Uh, did it bring back memories, or uh, did it open some eyes, or <laughs> what yeah, happened? Yeah, well, with, no, with... so, yeah, so my husband, I've been married to my husband since 1997. We've been together since 93. So when we met, he started hearing these stories, and uh, there was, you know, we didn't leave anything, you know, behind. We just, everything was on the table when we met, and because I had to let him know, you know, like, this this is who I am, and this is what, what went on. And he's known I've wanted to write ever since we met. And he was always the guy who made sure we had a, you know, I had an office set up somewhere where I could do my work. And, but I never had the confidence to do it until I hit my forties. So his reaction the whole time is just go baby, go. He's been super supportive. Um, You know, we have two kids and 
he's a great dad. He gave me the time and space I needed to write. He always, you know, kind of cleared out for a few hours on the weekends to with the kids so I could be in the house alone. Um, you know, so he's been super supportive. My mom, of course, is um, very proud. I'm an only child. So, um, you know, she's a fiercely proud of me. And uh, I don't think she was shocked at all um, or, you know, upset. She was just um, super proud. So, that, yeah. And she, if, she, if she felt anything else, she hasn't told me otherwise. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, well, but, well uh, that's good. I mean, the the book is honest and, and, you know, sometimes it, it, uh, you know, peeks into the wounds that, that you carried through your life. You know, right. nobody has, yeah, a, sure. nobody has it easy really, you know, right. <laughs> it's just yeah. what, it's just what they uh, allowed the readers to, uh, you know to hear right. about so yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure I, I know I did hold a lot back right right so, yeah I was gonna say I did a um I did through the editing tone some things down and cut some things out that didn't serve the story well but you know there's a lot more to it as well um but for sure I cobbled together the narrative um you know that showed the journey from who I was to who I am you know today um and uh yeah so but it's there's no regrets i think when you go through a big life um experience like a cancer diagnosis or a death or a divorce um all of a sudden you don't really give a shit what people think and mm-hmm. it becomes necessary as an artist to uh be completely honest and um put that vulnerability out there that's the way we connect at, at the human level is you know no life is spot, is spotless no life is perfect but despite that we can um we can remake ourselves we can choose better we can survive so um i think that's what it's ultimately about is surviving and and connecting so um anyway that's my spiel on that <laughs> yeah yeah it, it is a survival story you know in many ways and and you know, like you, um, you know, I, I had a strange relationship with my father, uh, but we reconnected after a, a while. And, you know, it, you know, the book is, is honest about that. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I kind of feel a parallel and a lot of people do because, you know, uh, coming from a, a broken family is something that, uh, a good portion of us at least 50 to 70 percent of us deal with so it's right it's relatable in that way but but the the neat thing that i found throughout the book is that you um like gave uh like helped gene simmons and and lemmy kilmeister on on like a higher pedestal than everyone else and and yeah. that I understand too so. <laughs> right I mean you know it's funny because you know we came up during the hair metal all the pretty boys in spandex um and those guys were cute for sure you know they were fun but the, the guys with the gravitas the you know the, that really put themselves out there um you know those were the ones I was you know they weren't necessarily attractive in any way other than they were just in command of their of themselves, of their music, of their art. And uh, that's what I was attracted to was just that, um, that powerful kind of that masculine energy that wasn't represented in my household Um, and connecting with, you know, that primal male fierce, uh, you know, whatever it is that um, the men have 
Um, Anna, but- <laughs> Anna, Marie, Anna, Marie, Anna Marie had an alternate title for her book, Ugly Dudes Rock 2. <laughs> right right but yeah so I mean it's just um yeah they were kind of father figures to me and and, you know you can see on my Instagram page or on my Facebook page that I've put up a picture of my father um and Lemmy and you can see the resemblance it's almost shocking oh yeah um their physical resemblance so um and I think they kind of had a same the same attitude about life as well um kind of just live and let live and just uh, move on. But I did want to represent in some way the impact that my dad did or didn't have on my life and through the um, experience he had in Vietnam. And I think that's another parallel with the generation is so many of us had dads who were in Vietnam and that war rippled throughout our generation as, you know, as it um, affected families and children and alcoholism and divorce rates, you know, it, it impacted us greatly. And I don't know if it's been, you know, really deeply studied. Gen X is kind of overlooked in a lot of, um, in a lot of ways, you know, they don't market to us, you know, they market to the millennials or the boomers. Um, But those of Mm -hmm. us in that sandwich in the middle, I think our stories have gotten forgotten. And that's, you know, the other thing I wanted to serve with this book was this is, you know, I was there. This is my testimony for what I saw during this time period, uh, not only in the music scene, but in the country, in Los Angeles, going through the riots. Um, it oh, was just yeah. my testimony as a, as a, gen- a Generation X woman who um, had this experience. And I know it connects with a lot of people. I've heard from a lot of people, you know. Um, so uh, that's, I think that's been the biggest gift is uh, finding those readers who connect with the story. Yeah, I mean, the, even the first night that that you arrived in in LA, you know, <laughs> driving into Laurel yeah. Canyon and then you know going down to the Sunset Strip, you know, your, your yeah. first night was kind of like, <laughs> kind of like a dream yeah. come true for anyone that that's going out there, you know. <laughs> right. It was. Then, yeah, it was almost unbelievable. But you know, I was like living it. I'm like, holy cow, this is amazing. Like, I just had to show up. I just had to take the the leap of faith. And so many things unfolded. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the stories in there, you know, resonated with me. Uh, but the one that, that I took away from that that I still think about is, um, you know, and, and without giving too much away, because I I don't like to do that. I love people to, right, right. to read the book and find out themselves. Um, but um, it was while you were living in, a, in an apartment building and you came upon a vacant apartment with a bunch of books. So uh, that oh, yeah. that kind of stuck right. with me. Yeah, those books um, in in many ways were the glimmer of my future as a librarian. So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, that those books came to me for a reason, and I felt like I was meant to um, to protect them in some way. And so it was kind of symbolic in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the the book, you know, um, it surround, you know, surrounds like the different um, places that you lived, your relationships, um, you know, that that may or may not have worked out. Um, also, uh, your time working at Metal Blade Records and and working for, a, a, you know other people that may or right. may not have also been shady, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> right. but they treated you well, so that's all that matters. Yeah, so, um. <laughs> yeah the kindness of strangers is an is a, is a underlying theme in this book, is for, for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, well, even after that too, um, you know, just just by reaching out to different people, and I can attest, Pamela Debar will probably get back to you. She's she's a gracious uh, woman, and uh, you know, she she loves uh, sharing her story and, and sharing other people's stories. So I, right. I've spoken with her a couple of times, and and she's supremely cool. Just just everything that she's lived through, you know, like that. Right, for sure. That is mind boggling. Too, yeah. But, um, yeah, I love like, Pamela. Is like, just I, she's just. I felt like she was like a fairy godmother on my shoulder the whole time, um, and just knowing her story and being inspired by it, and then seeing the places she had described. It was like, um, yeah, I, I had I had her on my shoulder the whole time, and uh, yeah, I. I can't wait till she reads the book. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And like you, I also had a proclivity for bass players, so I was like, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> right? So. Yeah, I mean, from, you know, from the time I was a kid, like, you know, Gene Simmons and then, you know, John Taylor of Duran Duran and, um, uh, you know, Duff McKagan and um, Nikki uh-huh. Six, of course. Mr. Six uh, will always be my number one. But, um, you know, it just the bass players and, you know, I've always been friends with bass players in the book. My friend Kevin Amici is a bass player. Um, and, uh, you know, just bass players are the cool dudes. They're the, they're yeah. mellow. Um, and, and they, they keep just, the rhythm. Um, they keep the rhythm, but they're, they still groove, you know, and that's kind yeah. of, that's, that's my vibe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Another thing that stood out in the, the book was, and and this is like I think probably uh, one of the main reasons that that people should buy the book is it's just basically your presentation for your your masters um, like that in and of itself should just be a book you know <laughs> like that, that that was yeah you that, know, um, it, yeah go ahead no 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 go go oh I was gonna say that yeah that um. I was able to tie it up because, you know, going through library school, I like, I I never even thought I was going to go to college. So um, getting into UCLA to do my master's degree in library science um, was just, again, one of those dreams come true that I couldn't believe I was actually living that reality, that I was getting the opportunity uh, in this world to um, pursue that dream. And, uh, you know, for the most part, it's been a positive thing (laughs) being a librarian, but, uh, you know, doing tying in the heavy metal with the um, free speech debates and the old PMRC, the Tipper Gore um, madness that happened in the mid and late 80s that uh, wanted to label albums. You know, being able to tie that all into my master's presentation was, um, it just felt very natural to me. Um, you know, and People were like, you know, you don't look like a librarian, and then other people say you don't look like a metalhead either, and it's like that's that's good. I like to keep people guessing because there there is a connection <laughs> between music and books, um, and yeah. this is a very clear connection between music and books, um, and that in, in the intellectual freedom, in the pursuit of intellectual autonomy as human beings, that we must keep free speech free. First Amendment is first for a reason, and I um, never felt that more you know, as a librarian, um, that we must keep free speech open. Um, cause people, you know, people are going to make, uh, jerks of themselves by what they say. We can be, be, we can be the judges of it, you know? Um, so that's, that's how I tied it all together. But, you know, seeing how heavy metal had been marginalized and censored, um, over the years, 
you know, it pissed me off. Um, I think people should be able to buy what they want to buy and listen to what they want to listen to, read what they want to read. Um, that's, you know, that's how I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, it's just, just like the banned books issue yep. or, or listening to uh, Cannibal Corpse, if you want to listen to Cannibal Corpse, you know. Um, right. Coincidentally, like today is the day that they agreed to put the parental advisory discretion stickers on the on the uh, albums. But I think that that was like a blessing and a curse because I think with those parental advisory stickers, more people went out to, to buy the, the albums, don't you think? Oh, I mean. yeah. <laughs> it was forbidden fruit, you know? It was uh, – if it had a band sticker on it or a, you know, censored sticker on it, it uh, that made it more delectable. Sherry, are you saying that November 1st is the day that – Stickers went on. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, you know, here's some synchronicity. November first is Larry Flint's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. My, my first boss, my mentor, and <laughs> yeah. there's no no greater example of a warrior for freedom of speech than that man. I think I think oh. he's seventy. I think he's seventy seven today. You could check. Yeah. So yeah. So and. That's the, I feel the same way about Larry Flint. I don't have to like it. I don't have to consume it. But I think other people should be able to make the choice to do so. Right. Isn't it ironic, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and, and speaking with you two about it also. So that, that, that makes it even better. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we love alignment. Yes. <laughs> We've had a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, how did the stars align for you two? How how did you meet? Um, how did you connect? I mean, I know that you were at the the legendary uh, rip party, but and you had yeah. his number. But how did that happen? No, when we, did the connection take be, place? We met because of social media, Instagram. Instagram. Uh, I just somehow she found me, or I found her. Reacted to to uh, some a post where she was discussing. Uh, writing a book about a genre that I was familiar with. And we just started communicating. It's very organic. Then I made a couple road trips to Tempe, Arizona, from Las Vegas, and sat and talked to her. And then she, she said, oh, you, you, you have to write the forward to my book. There, you, it's important. And I said, okay. I mean, it's like, you don't have to twist my arm. Yeah. I don't have a lawyer negotiating <laughs> my deals anymore. I, I have nobody negotiating anything anymore. <laughs> so I'm still, she found herself. I'm still looking. Yeah. So he reached out to me on social media, on Instagram. And I'll yeah, do it. Yeah. I'd be honored. <laughs> and we just like, like you described, we just started talking on Instagram and then uh, emailing and, um, he came to visit. We went out to see a friend of his, Craig Gass, at a comedy club. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I rolled, and I just rolled. I sat with her like I was doing an interview, and I just rolled the memo pad and just collected impressions. And then I went back to Vegas, and I wrote something up. And she's a, such a good editor. She's so keen on phrasing, and she knows she knew what she wanted the narrative of her book to read, and she made a couple tweaks, made me sound better. <laughs> I've, I've always, I've always loved good editors. I've had many in my long career, 
And I was I'm proud. I mean, I just re- in the last hour am holding the book in my hand for the first time. <clears throat> and it gives me that old school feeling when you have something printed, like the magazine would come out every month and you could turn the pages. And yeah. I got excited when they brought me my issue. Yeah, for sure. It's not a digital thing. It's an old school touch it and smell it and feel it thing. Yeah. I got excited yeah. when I got the book and I saw my, there's my name. Yeah. I mean, I'm long past being a narcissist. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, that's cool. That's cool. I'm really grateful. And that's how I feel. Yeah. That's why I'm here today, you know? Yeah. That's the big thing about this. I mean, a lot of magic has unfolded in the course of writing this book. I've met a lot of really great people. Um, people have come to my aid, you know, uh, Joey Vera of Armored Saint and his wife, Tracy Vera. Uh, I worked with Tracy at Metal Blade, but, you know, I peppered them with questions throughout the writing process, <laughs> making sure my timelines were correct. Hey, do you remember this the same way? Hey, let me get background on uh, these Armored Saint shows and stuff. Um, and Lon, you know, Brian Slagle helped me out a few times. I just texted Dave Ellison and said, dude, I'm in Tempe. Got a book for you. Yeah, I think he's in England right now. Oh, but shit. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the Ellisons, Dave and Julie Ellison, uh, also gave me some feedback on the book. Um, you know, so it's it's like like it's coming full circle, lots of synchronicity and magic. And you know, Lon's friendship coming out of this is is just you know, as a kid, I just never would have guessed it. I never would have thought going to that first Guns and Roses show <laughs> when I was 16, reading that Rip magazine with Guns and Roses on the cover for the first time that all these years later he'd be writing the forward to my book. So that's been a huge gift. His How about this for synchronicity? April 1989, the very first, June 1988, the very first Guns N' Roses pull cover, yep. which I greenlit, and the story is in my book, in my Welcome to the ju- My Jungle chapter. Yeah. But how, how about this, Sherry? Just to throw some more serendipity on you. I leave Las Vegas to come here for the weekend, and who's playing in Las Vegas this weekend? Guns and Roses. Yes. yes, yes, Two nights at Caesar's Palace. Yeah, yeah. So all these fun synchronicities, but you know, Lon's support and friendship throughout the last part of this project has just been a huge, huge blessing. And I'd uh, much rather be here, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> been there done that 30 years ago they're still great i love slash i stay in touch with them and uh the fans should could should see them because axel's really he's showing up on time and doing two and a half hours like he really it's a life force thing now yeah. it's not money they're so rich it's a life force thing and that's cool to know i haven't seen him physically or talked to him in over 20 years, probably closer to 25. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. I stay in touch with the people I stay in touch with. And they're rock stars, and they live in their own weird universe. <laughs> we have to appreciate the music, because they're all going to die. Look look at them dropping from my era. Yeah. They're all disappearing. Yeah. Oh, well, our our era, too. Uh, you know, like yeah, our, that's true. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, the ones that, you know, uh, really mean a lot. Tom Petty is, is one of them. Prince is another oh, one. Yeah. David Bowie. I mean, those three David are... David Bowie, Tom it, Petty. Yeah. Chris Cornell still... Chris Cornell. Oh, Chris Cornell. I had wonderful adventures with Chris Cornell. Yeah. And he was one of my favorite people. I under, kind of understood him 
a little, you know, a bit deeper, more personal level. He shared some demons with me. I still doesn't it doesn't mitigate the sadness that I felt when he departed so abruptly. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's the thing is we're only here for so long and we don't know when our time is. And it's important to share these stories, share our music, share our writing. Um, while we can. And I'll just give you one quick little thing about Guns N' Roses. So uh, not to, I hate even talking about the cancer stuff, but five days after I was diagnosed, uh, my husband took me to see Guns N' Roses in 2016 for the first time since yeah. I was a kid, you know, since I saw them in, you know, Ohio and at Buckeye Lake Music Center in 1992 or whenever it was. Um, yeah, trudging through the mud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, well, no, that was a different show, but yeah, um, that was a Motley Crue show, but yeah, getting oh, to go sorry. back and see Guns N' Roses, um, uh, you know, in 2016, I was it was the best medicine. We had floor seats. They were at out at Glendale Stadium um, in Phoenix here, and it was just the the most amazing show. It was a huge gift. I was uh, you know to be able to be there and see it, um, and like like it should have been always. Like you seeing Axel actually just um he owned that stage and it was so gratifying to see that he and them had come back to this and it was it was magnificent so it was good medicine going into that fight that I had but um yeah Guns N' Roses will always be near and dear to my heart (laughs) yeah music is is a great catharsis and and reading too you know um yeah I you know, those are the two things that I go back with, especially when faced with difficult times. <laughs> you know, I still yeah. lock myself in my bedroom and, and read or listen to music or do both at the same time, you know, so. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, especially when you're dealing with, with trauma or something that is, is life-altering, for sure. Right, So. yeah, yeah. It's a good, good comfort, good medicine. Um, I think music speaks to us on a different level. Your love is like bad medicine. <laughs> Sorry. I was waiting for something from you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am yeah. a Leo. I am a Leo. It's surrounded by female energy. I tend to sing. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like you. <laughs> well, my roar oh, has good. diminished my roar has diminished considerably. I roar from the inside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, you know, what's very interesting is, is that um, you're a, a librarian now, as you mentioned, you know, that you have been. Yep. But um, you're a children's librarian, right? Yes, I am. And that's um, and, kind of by accident. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, so I um, I got my library degree in 2003, and right after um, I had moved back to Phoenix and uh, got my job at where I work, and uh, I went into, so I was a librarian for a couple of years, and I was promoted into a management job, uh, so I managed the main floor of the library, and then I had two babies in two years, and all of a sudden that workload was untenable, and so I demoted myself. I stepped away from my management position and and the good money and all the stuff. And I went down to a part-time position at the library um, so that I could be home more with my kids. So I did that for eight years. And the the only position they had for me was in the children's department. So I said, okay, well, I've got small kids and um, it seems appropriate, you know, like I should probably learn that since I have kids. 
And uh, so that's where I've been ever since. It's, it's a great place to be. I, I think, you know, humanity is, is ugly and the library has turned into a place that um, humanity's never been ugly. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the public library has kind of turned into more of a social services center than it, than it is about books or information. Um, it's now kind of a hub of um, social services that are um, provided by my community which is fine, but it's not the training I received. Uh, I, I went to school to be a reference librarian, you know, um, not a, a, a social services person. Um, mm-hmm. But that's what it's turned into. So, um, you know, you adapt and you grow and you roll with it. And, you know, I've been at the same job for 16 years now and um, as a librarian in, in general, the same place. And, um, you know, being a children's librarian, serving the children of our community is a huge honor. Um, and it's good work. It's important work that we have a safe place for children and their pa- parents to come and, and um, have programs and have, you know, all kinds of resources available to them um, in, in a good environment. So I love doing it. I do baby story times. Uh, so I try to incorporate music uh, into um, everything I do. Um, and uh, hold on just a second. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, music education is super important. There you go. Um, and <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been being distracted <laughs> by my love I, over here. <laughs> she, she's not skilled in this. I am. I'm distracting her so she gets her chops. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> I try to do. Uh, I try to incorporate music into the whole thing to uh, help build those baby brains, because uh, music is the first form of literacy. Um, uh-huh. The the rhythms and the sounds of Mama's voice um, and body are the first things babies hear. So, I try to emphasize that in what I do with kids. Um, so, yeah. So, being a children's librarian, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a metal librarians group on Facebook and. Uh, one one of my friends is actually in that group. I uh, went to high school with her, and she's also a young adult in, in a children's library in, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of neat, you know, with like the librarians who are into to music and and metal, speci- you know, specifically have their own yeah. uh, community that they could uh, share things with. Right. Yeah. Mus- librarians are some really cool people. I'll tell you that much. I've met oh, yeah, some great yeah. people. Um, so many diverse interests and backgrounds, and we tend to congregate in little huddles of, of specialties, you know. Um, so, you know, mine is you know, medieval history and heavy metal music. So, um, but yeah, the metal librarians on Facebook have been supportive, and I actually just found them a few weeks ago because, uh, you know, I've been in a bubble for the past five years. So I'm coming out of my cocoon like, oh, I have to, I have to look around and see who else is out here, you know. Um, but yeah, so. Um, librarians are very musical people. They, you know, um, some books, music. Because they're muse-like. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Sherry, <laughs> um, are you a Pennsylvania girl? I am, but now I live in Florida, so. Are you a Bucks County girl? Um, no, actually I lived in the Poconos, so that would be Monroe okay. County. But I'm familiar with Bucks County. I that's I used to. Um, yeah, that's where M Knight makes all his movies. Mm, interesting. Oh yes, yes. M Knight makes all of his movies there, and he actually, um, for his last film, he filmed at 
Allentown State Hospital, where my mother worked at as um, a, a oh. med. She was she was a nurse at at the mental hospital there. So. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Wow! They, Interesting. They they condemned the place. They closed it, condemned it, and then M. Night filmed uh, his his last movie there. Glass. So, yes. Yeah. Gla- glass. Glass. Yes. Yes. Glass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> so my my mom walked in those hallowed halls. So. <laughs> I had an assi- I had an assignment in '88. Lita Ford was playing Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> And I wrote more about the lamppost being shaped like Hershey's Kisses than I did about the show itself. (laughs) I was so blown away by this little village where the lampposts were kisses. I thought that was, oh, my God, that's so cool. (laughs) I've been there many times. In fact, uh, one of the shows that I saw there was Guns N' Roses with Skid Row and Slaughter opening yep. up for them. So <laughs> I, I do I do remember that tour. Oh boy. Yep. <laughs> yes, that Great. was a tour. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean but I, uh, you did this book on your own basically. You you self published. I mean I, I know that you put out queries, but what ultimately made you say like, look, I'm gonna do this on my terms and and uh get this done. Just Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, I I went into it thinking I'm going to get a publishing deal. Um, I'm going to find an agent. I'm going to query. And as I finished the draft that I was finishing and started querying, um, it's kind of a sick feeling just waiting on the sidelines to be chosen. You know, it Mm -hmm. it felt disempowering to me. Um, I just, it gave me a queasy feeling. Like, these people... Not that I have anything against agents. Uh, I'm sure they're great people who work with very talented writers. But waiting around for somebody to notice me just isn't my style. Like, I, it just, ugh, it gave me a sticky feeling. So um, I kind of had to get over it in my own head. Like, I had to give up the ego part of this process. Um, you know, who am I to think that I could, you know, land an agent? Well, it, at this point, it doesn't matter because going through the process myself has taught me a lot, and um, I, I don't think I want to give up that control um, of being able to um, approve my own book cover or find uh, my own editor. Um, you know, uh, it, was, it was very empowering to be a self-published author and just not to wait around. And, you know, I've got more books to write. This, You know, going through a publishing process can take – years to get a book on the shelf, you know, Mm -hmm. by the time you start the queries and find an agent and that agent shops it to publishers who may or may not like what you have, who may want revisions, um, the back and forth, uh, they find the graphic artist and the person who's going to write the foreword and they get the blurbs and all of that felt very disempowering to me. So, um, I figured, you know, at some point I turned the corner, it was only in the last, year of the whole process that I started to really think differently about it and look at it as I'm playing the long game. Uh, I want to be a writer for the rest of my life. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I'm not in a hurry. And this is going to be part of my backlist, you know, this one book, it doesn't matter if it's published by a big house or not, I'm going to be a writer regardless. So, um, you know, just coming to that and kind of finding that intestinal fortitude 
to just say, you know, screw it. I'm going to do it regardless. Um, just like I did moving to Los Angeles when I was 18. Just like you just have to trust. You have to put your feet out there and just trust that the next steps will, will follow. Um, and it all did. It all it all came together. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that process was a long one for me to let go of um, wanting to be recognized by being published by a big five publishing house. Um, but ultimately, I really, the satisfaction that comes with self-publishing is something that I don't think a big publisher is going to replicate. And if they do, um, I know it's going to be on future books where I've kind of proven my chops. Um, and that's fine, too. I'm always open to opportunity, but I love the, uh, the feeling that comes with having done it myself. I'm a do-it-yourselfer anyways. I, you know, I do my own hair. Uh, you know, I, I love to cook, so it's just I, I prefer to do things myself. Yeah, and and we're all our own biggest critic for the most part. So you're right. your own agent, you're your own editor. You, you know, the the whole yeah, the whole uh, shebang, so to speak. You know, I mean, uh, right. writing a book is writing a book is is taking a huge leap of faith. And and there, like those are some of the things that that I always thought about was getting an agent, getting a literary agent or a publishing deal. But you know, like yeah. Speaking with you, it's like okay, take the the uh, rain, you know, take the reins and do it yourself. You know, that, that that's right. quite inspiring, also. Yeah, it's um, it's been a huge learning process, and honestly, and I'm gonna plug my good friend. Um, her name is Lauren Sapala at laurensapala.com. She's a writing coach, and I've been working with her for five years, and she's an intuitive empath an INFJ on the Myers-Briggs, as am I. But when I started talking to her, I started to see things a little different about my writing. And um, she has published, in the time I've known her, I think four books now, working on her fifth. She's got a video course coming out on intuitive writing. And seeing her kind of blaze the path ahead of me in terms of her own work gave me a lot of confidence. And just seeing how it's done right up close and having somebody to confide in about all of the, oh, my God, what ifs and the anxieties that come with being a writer, um, it was a huge benefit to me. Um, I, you know, with two small kids, I wasn't about to run around town into writing groups looking for approval, hoping that somebody reads my stuff and connects with it. I, that's just not my style. But having that one person to talk to, um, you know, and I, and I do some coaching as well for people. But having that one person to talk to for me uh, gave me the confidence to tackle the self-publishing and to look at it differently. Like it's not just about writing that one book and hoping, and, you know, hoping to build a writing career off that one book. It's about playing the long game as a writer and understanding that there's going to be rhythms uh, to life, valleys and mountains. You know, you go up and down. But ultimately, if you want to be a writer, you have to write. You have to put out your stuff. And however you do that is how you do it. But self-publishing for me was, it made so much sense um, that, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure I'll keep going with it um, until I don't. Um, there, at some point, I feel like if I'm meant to have a big publishing deal, it'll find me. I mean, I'm going to keep working regardless. So um, you just have to, you know, you have to lean into it. You know, you have to face it head, head on and just say, this is something I want. I don't want to be a librarian forever, you know. I want to be a writer, so I'm willing to play well, the long game. Lon, Lon needs a couple more books to do forwards for, too. No, I'm right? I know. 
Yeah, he'll, uh, <laughs> he, you know, and he's the same way. He, he's always played the long game in terms of writing. Just he just keeps writing, you know. Yeah. And uh, I've been working eight years on my third memoir, <laughs> and it's not even close. Not even close. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, writing friends when we find each other, we are supportive of each other, and you yeah. know. Uh, absolutely that's just how it goes. and um yeah so I love I love helping writers you know I surrounded myself with books that's what I my whole life is built around books um that's how I make my living um so helping writers is a natural part of that um because I look at those shelves at the library and I think every single one of these books on the shelf started out as an idea in some writer's mind and that writer no doubt had anxieties and fears and what ifs and doubts about what they were doing. And yet, all of these books were published. So it's possible. Um, it's possible for any yeah. writer who, who digs in and, and puts the work in and has faith in their own process. Um, it's not a linear process for me. It never was. And, you know, I'm all over the place. But eventually it comes full, full circle. It spirals back into itself. And and the book gets done. And um, you just have to stick with it. The only way to fail is to quit, and I kept telling myself that. Yeah, they didn't exactly. find Emily. They they didn't find Emily Dickinson's poems until three years after she died. Yeah. So. So you, it's there when it's there. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> I understand that. You, you have to. Well, you have to have the the ambition and just keep writing. You know, if it takes eight years to to do a book or eight months, I mean, some people it it, it flows out, an idea flows out of their their brains. I don't know how, but um, and it takes eight months for them to write a book. But um, right. you know, some people the the process takes a little longer. And you know, if you have a supportive uh, group of people around you. Um, that makes it even better. So, um, yeah. and plus, I, I I just saw an an Instagram post or something to that effect that that your book is on the library shelf too, which which is probably surreal to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um, of course, I had to donate the book to the library, <laughs> but that's great. They cataloged it and put it on the shelf so people in our community can, you know, read my work. And um, you know, I hope more libraries pick it up. I hope more librarians pick it up. Um, because it is, you know, in some ways it's a testimony to the profession that, um, you know, this is why we do it. Uh, and, um, yeah, seeing it on the book on the library shelf somehow gave it even more validation. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hugely satisfying thing to see and to feel. What gives it validation is when you come into your library and there's two young people doing it between your stacks because of something that inspired them that they read. Then you know you're affecting <laughs> That's the next memoir. <laughs> My next book is going to be a call. It's called Librarian Confidential, and it's going to be all about the, uh, the ups and downs of that being a librarian. Sexy. So, yeah, it'll it'll kind of be the second part of the story. Pulp friction. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, uh, Juan, you and uh, you're you're doing an appearance this weekend, actually tomorrow at the. Um, Tempe uh, Book Festival to uh, talk, you know, right with with uh, Anna Marie. Yep. We'll be uh, here tomorrow. We're gonna we're gonna chat and sign and cajole the library folk that come out. It's it's just enjoyable. It's beautiful here in Tempe. Sunny, 
it's not too hot, not too cold. Yeah. It should be cool. It should be a really good day. Yeah, so the the book festival is uh, tomorrow on November 2nd from 10, uh, 10 a.m. till 3 p.m., and we have a bunch of local authors and writers. Uh, we'll have food trucks, and it's in the basically the public plaza of the Tempe Public Library at 3500 South Rural Road in Tempe. And uh, so we'll be there. We'll have some music going. I'll have books to sign for us and uh, bookmarks to give out. <laughs> and and uh, I'm doing whatever Anna Marie tells me to do because this is my place. Yeah. Well, you know, I just you got to ask for <laughs> I'm what I'm here you to need. support the muse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah. So it's you know it's my first book signing, so I'm excited and a little nervous. But um, I you know I'm surrounded by people that love me and support me, and um, you know many of them are my coworkers. So it'll be a great day tomorrow. Wonderful. So for the both of you, that this question I have is any tips for those going after their dreams or for those writing their first book or just writing in general, what, what kind of tips or suggestions or what would you like to say to those listening who, who may be in a rut and are thinking about chasing after their dreams? The way I always counsel write young writers and I've been doing this almost 40 years now is start with the journal. Start with what I le- what you learn in the artist's way, Julia Cameron's mm-hmm. shape-shifting book. Just write it down. No one needs to read it. It doesn't have to have an audience. But the process of expression, you will develop a voice. Then if it comes to where the universe aligns you for a professional journey to get something published, start local. Start in something that you love. And just do it. Be a poet. And always in this day and age, it's the writers and the poets that are going to save civilization. Mm-hmm. I learned this from Henry Miller, my literary hero. And he was banned. Mm-hmm. He was banned, and he became, a, uh, the, to me, the bravest voice of American literature. I And he's born on the same day as Lars Ulrich, December, <laughs> December 26th, who wrote the foreword. To my first book. See how amazing the threads of the universe connect us all. <laughs> yeah, that would be that's that would be just my general non-specific take. There are no single paths to any illusory destination. You just just get it down, write it down. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. There's a book uh, that I relied on uh, years ago called "Write It Down to Make It Happen." And it's very true. I think when we write things down, we activate parts of our brain. Um, and those writings, whatever they are, they, those become breadcrumbs in the forest that you can go back and look for. Um, so that's how I, you know, I've left myself breadcrumbs my whole life. You know, whatever, journals, photos, letters, um, even emails I've printed out and kept um, just to leave those breadcrumbs. But for a writer writing the first book, it's all about faith. It's a complete act of faith in yourself. And um, like I said earlier, you only fail if you quit, and you you have to hold it um, center in your mind that this is something you're going to do, and then you just have to do the work um, because everything else works itself out. You know, um, you'll find your readers, you'll find uh, you know the story. Um, you just have to follow it, and uh, it's not a linear path. There's no clear cut path. There's no one right way. Every writer is different. Um, and uh, so it's an act of complete faith and uh, perseverance. And, 
yeah, if, you, if people want to do it, they have to do it. They have to sit down and do the work. It doesn't write itself. And um, you don't have to write every day. I never wrote every day. People who say, write 500 words a day or you're not a writer, I think, are full of shit. I go, um, I go mm-hmm. years without writing. Yeah, so I think, it, you know, for me, it was like I could, if uh, I could find a few hours. Yeah, right. Uh, and I went years without writing, and I was miserable. Um, and to me, it was if I could write in two or two chunks a week, I was good. You know, that felt good rather than the pressure of writing every day. Um, I have other people who write every day and wouldn't give it up. So there's no one right way. You have to find your rhythm as a writer. And the only way to find that rhythm is to actually do the work because the work becomes muscle memory. The habit of sitting down to do that work becomes part of your routine. Yes, because social media has rearranged the molecular structure of writing. Yes. Everybody yeah. now taps their fingers on their little screen and right. they're all writers. Yeah. We're, 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 we're overwhelmed now with photographers and writers. <laughs> That's all that our phones have made us all artists. Yeah. Well, there is a positive mm-hmm. to that. It also somewhat dilutes those who have had earlier careers uh, built on the printed page. Right. <laughs> but I'm not judging. I think it's great as long as it's done with a sense of elevation, that you're you're not out there destroying humanity and there's so much negative energy in social media I, I want it to I want there to be art and everything that's the idealism that I'm shifting into in my 60s yeah for sure and I think um, you know using those tools in a responsible way for you for me Instagram is like my diary it's my journal it's documenting parts of my life I've got like eight years on that thing now and I'm looking back at it going holy cow there's like two or three more books all the breadcrumbs are in my Instagram. So, um, you know, but I also keep journals and other things. So use those tools to your advantage. Uh, spread beauty and joy in the world. Spread a good message. We're hippies. Um, Come on. Yeah. Gary, we're <laughs> in many ways, yeah. You know, so I just, you know, writers have to find the tools that work for them. And there's no, there's no perfect formula. You just have to find your way. So for people uh, looking to purchase the book, where can they find it? And where where can they find you if they want to reach out to, to discuss anything or, or ask you questions? What's yeah, the best absolutely. way to do that? Um, um, I have a website, uh, AnnaMarieOBrien.com. Um, my Instagram is at MetalheadLibrarian. Um, and I'm on Facebook uh, as Adventures of the MetalheadLibrarian. Um they can reach out to me on any of those channels, direct message me on Twitter at AnnaMarieOBrien.com as well. Um, the book is available on Amazon. I have it is uh, available as a print. And the print version is absolutely beautiful, if I do say so myself. I had a terrific graphic artist. It's, and a, It really is. And a, and a great guy who wrote the foreword. I wept um, when I got my copy. <laughs> but I also have it available as a Kindle download. Um, and that's, uh, you know, for people who prefer the digital format. Both are great, um, you know, great ways to read it. And, it's worth uh, just the mullet photo <laughs> of Anna Marie on the opening page. Just, just as I'm in the pit at a slaughter show in 1990. You just have to see this photograph. She's priceless. Yeah, so that's sort of by the book into uh, get in contact with me. Um, slaughter, armored saint. Yeah, please, no slaughter. The no. hair is slaughter worthy. I got to tell you that. And I still get shit from like Bill Matoyer over that. But, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where to find me. And I'd love to connect with readers anytime on those channels um, and, and so forth. 
<laughs> well, in closing, um, what would you both like to add? Um, anything you'd like to, to promo or look out for from either of you? It's it's free form right now. Just go. <laughs> I, I, I have nothing to promote, uh, nothing except peace and love. I'm Ringo Starr, peace and love. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm in the thick of promoting this book right now. It's my baby, so I'm giving the next couple of months to, uh, you know, connecting with people and um, giving this the launch that it deserves. Uh, and then I'm going to start writing my next book, Librarian Confidential. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't take me five years. I think maybe I can bust it out in a couple. We'll see. Um, I put no timelines on it. But um, that's it. You know, yeah, peace, love, and understanding. Let's be nice to each other. Yeah, kindness. what's so funny about that? Right? Yeah, like, let's promote <laughs> kindness. Let's, let's pay it forward to people. Pay it forward. Yeah, and uh, just keep it good, keep it funny. And You know, Haley Joel Osment died on the grounds of Centennial High in Pay It Forward, and that's in Vegas. It is. Shot in Vegas. Okay, there you go. Sorry, I had to throw that in. <laughs> Yeah, you know, promote beauty and, and love, and uh, let's be good to each other. And you're out there. doing good work, Sherry. Thank you for your time and and your interest. Yeah, thank you for uh, reaching out and uh, bringing us together on this beautiful yeah, day. Yeah, you did good job. Thank you, um, Anna Marie O'Brien, lawn friend. Get the book Adventures of a Metalhead Librarian. If you're in Tempe, go to the Tempe Book Festival. And uh, I appreciate your time today, too. And uh, thanks to all for listening to Just Push Play. Be good to each other. <laughs>